0: 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan ritter This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Miklob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at mclobaltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card. Subject to credit approval, savings available to Apple Card owners, subject to eligibility savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Member FDIC, terms apply. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com as well as The Ringer Podcast Network. I hope you're listening to our music podcast. We have some really good ones. We got something for everybody. 60 Songs That Explain the 90s is fantastic. Rob Hervilla hosts that. I actually feel like it's gotten better every month. Um, He really has complete command of it. He did Cakes the Distance this week, I think. Um, I just listened to it, and uh, I love that band. I love the 96 album. It's one of my favorite 90s bands, so I love that one. You can listen to No Skips with Shea Serrano, Brandon Jenkins, a.k.a. Jinx. Um, We launched that a few weeks ago. They're about eight episodes in. The Ringer Music Show, they did a Jay-Z song draft. Black Girl Songbook last week did an incredible podcast. Daniel Smith did it about uh, Tupac as he hit uh, what would have been his 50th birthday. And then last but not least, if you didn't listen to every single album with Nathan Hubbard and Nora Princiati, um, you can find it on Ringer Dish. You can also find it on the Spotify playlist. But we, I'm telling you, we really took it up a notch with the music stuff. I'm really proud of what we're doing there. Uh, The rewatchables... We did Boys in the Hood. That went up Monday. Was really happy with that one. And then we have a special rewatchables coming on Sunday night, Independence Day, because it's July 4th. So uh, sometimes we like to drop big rewatchables on July 4th. So that's what we're doing for that one. Independence Day, me, Chris Ryan, Shea Serrano, a surprisingly influential movie. I didn't actually realize how influential it was until I started doing the research and really thinking about it. But that is coming Sunday. I am not sure of the schedule yet for this podcast. It depends on if there is a game seven of Bucks Hawks or not. But if we're definitely not going to have a Sunday podcast and we'll either have a Monday or a Tuesday. So play it by ear. We'll see what happens. Coming up, I'm going to talk a little bit about Bucks Hawks at the top. Brian Curtis from The Ringer. We're going to talk about NBA broadcasters and Marv Rauber and uh, media storylines, like how much the media loves Chris Paul and a whole bunch of other things. And then Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated talking about the whole Chris Paul uh, legacy arc, as well as uh, summer trade rumors and uh, and some really interesting Celtics stuff. So stay tuned for that. It's all next. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. I'm taping this a little bit after 11 o'clock on Thursday night, game five of the Eastern Conference Finals, which will go down in history as the least star-studded, important conference finals game of my lifetime. I actually went back over every basketball reference. They have like the playoff series where you can just go through playoffs, then you click to the last one, you click to the last one. I went through every conference finals and even specific ones looked through some of the games trying to figure out if there's ever been a worse conference finals game. Uh, All due respect to the Bucs, all due respect to the Hawks, but the conference finals, this is usually when our bread is buttered. This is usually when we have some of the famous playoff games of the history of the league. This is when Bird steals the ball against the Pistons. This is when LeBron puts up 48 Against the, uh, against the Pistons in 2007. This is when we have the Chris Paul hamstring game against the Warriors in 2018. On and on and on and on. There's a million of them. I could just keep giving you examples forever. And then tonight, a huge, huge game. serious tied to two. Trey Young's not playing. We find that out within an hour before the game. And then we find out a few hours before the game that Giannis isn't playing either. So the two stars in the game, the two guys we wanted to see, the two guys who were healthy when this series started in a league where basically every star was going down as the playoffs kept going along. But at least we had these young guys. At least we had Booker. At least we had Trey Young. At least we had Giannis. Well, Booker breaks his nose in 17 places, but keeps playing, has to have the mask. Giannis gets hurt. It looks like his leg, he, he almost looks like plastic man. His kneecap is going five feet backwards. Somehow it's only a hyperextended knee, but he ends up not playing tonight. And then Trey Young gets hurt in, in, uh, in a game three by stepping on a referee's foot. And I asked a bunch of people in my life who love basketball, have they ever seen anyone get hurt? by accidentally stepping on a referee. And none of us could come up with another example of this. So these playoffs, they're jinxed. They're bizarre. I've never seen anything like it. And it leads to tonight where we have, these are the best players in the game. And I'm going to rank them. This is how I rank them, actually. Uh, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, Bogdanovich, Lopez, Kevin Herter, John Collins in some order. They're 5A, 5B. Capella, P.J. Tucker, Danilo Gallinari, Lou Williams. Those are our best 10 players in this game. I'm going to read that list to you again. Middleton, Holiday, Bogdanovich, Lopez, Collins, Herter, Capella, Tucker, Gallinari, Lou Williams, and let's throw in Bobby Portis too, just for a clean 11. I ask you this. If that was an actual team that played together for the entire season, would that be a 50-win team? I'm combining everybody on the, on, that I just listed. Let's throw them all into one team. Is that a 50-win team? Maybe? Could they be as good as the Jazz? Maybe? That was our Eastern Conference Finals tonight. So I went backwards. I targeted from the last 50 years, trying to find has there ever been a Conference Finals game that didn't have a superstar in it, that didn't have even like a high-end all-star in it? Because I don't even think Chris Middleton, God bless him, he's on the Olympic team, he's an all-star. I wouldn't call him a high-end all-star. He's not somebody who would like start an all-star game. Um, have we ever had a conference finals game ever that didn't have an A-lister, that didn't have the guy for the movie poster to put on the front, didn't have the Vin Diesel even? Well. All right, so I, I narrowed down to these four. The 2015 Eastern Conference Finals, the Cavs swept the Hawks. It was an awful series. The Hawks never had a chance. But guess what? At least LeBron was in the series, right? So yeah, you can do that a bunch of times over the years. We are like, wow, that series was terrible. The Warriors Blazers that year. Well, at least Curry was in the series. At least a famous person was in it. Um, Going backwards to the 2003 Eastern Conference Finals, which was awful. Nets swept the Pistons. The Pistons had like the foundation. You know, Wallace was there by then. Hamilton was there. They had the foundation of something. But not that year. Anyway, best player in that series was Jason Kidd. That's a good one. He's an A-lister. You could put him on a poster. I have him in my top 40 of all time. So that's still, Jason Kidd is better than anybody in the game we had tonight. All right, let's go backwards again. The 1999 Western Conference Finals. This was the um, lockout season. The season sucked. This playoff sucked. If you're complaining about this season, man, you would have hated 1999 because this was on top of a condensed and injuries and all the other stuff we had that year. No MJ. Um, we had guys that were literally out of shape. The lockout ended, guys showed up, and they're 15, 20 pounds overweight, guys making max money. Spurs swept the Blazers. And this is a Blazers team that had some talent, right? Rasheed Wallace is there and a whole bunch of people. Um, But no, you know, Rasheed Wallace, is he about as good as Chris Middleton? I'd honestly rather have Rasheed Wallace in, in a series in his prime, but about the same. Spurs had Duncan and Robinson. Two top 40 guys. Duncan's one of the 10 best guys ever. Robinson, I have somewhere in the mid-30s. And both of them were throwing their fastball at that point. Duncan's a little young, but uh, those were two A-list guys. All right, let's keep going backwards. The 1981 Western Conference Finals. Rockets Kings. This one's a doozy. This This one is probably our closest comparison to now. Because both of these teams were terrible. And when you talk about weird playoff series, this one probably takes the cake because <laughs> you, the Rockets were 40 and 42, which is nuts. And they have back then because the league's expanded, but it hasn't quite expanded enough. You have the Rockets take out the Lakers in a best of three. The Lakers defending champs, Magic, Kareem, the whole thing. and Moses And, the, and Moses is at his peak at this point. And they just knock out the Lakers. And at some point, we're like, well, wait a second, what's happening here? Well, at the same time, the Kansas City Kings, not even in Sacramento yet, they beat Portland in a best two out of three. They go to the next round and they shock Phoenix. They shock them. Phoenix had Dennis Johnson and Walter Davis and Chuck Robinson, no. Sacramento says, we're taking this. Well, it gets even weirder because Their whole starting backcourt is gone. They have Phil Ford and Otis Birdsong, who's starting backcourt, both really good guys, high lottery picks. Um, Otis Birdsong was one of the first kind of overpaid free agents eventually because the Nets signed him. But those were their two best players. Both of them go down. They're not in this series. The Kings win anyway, led by Reggie King, Scott Wedman, Ernie Grunfeld, and Sam Lacey. Have you heard, and Birdsong gets hurt two games, and have you... Have you had a conversation about Reggie King, Scott Wedman, Ernie Grunfeld, or Sam Lacey lately? No. Ernie Grunfeld's playing point guard. Have you seen Ernie Grunfeld? He was the guy that ran the Wizards. He's like 6'6", had a mustache. He was a small forward. It was the equivalent of, I don't know, Danilo Garinari playing point guard now. So somehow they beat them. And now we end up with this kooky Western Finals, which is the Rockets against the Kings. Two teams with losing records in the Western Finals. So what happens? The Rockets win in five. The Rockets win in five because they have Moses Malone. What does Moses do in this series? Well, he puts up 27 and 15 every night. Plays 45.6 minutes a game. Nobody else on his team that uh, you would even say was an all-star. Robert Reed, Calvin Murphy, Billy Pauls, Tom Henderson, Bill Willoughby, Allen Level, and uh, the immortal Mike Dunleavy. The Kings have... Reg King, Wedman, Grunfeld, Lacey. Phil Ford comes back, but he's hurt. Birdsong plays a game, but he's hurt. John Lambert, Leon Douglas. Here's the thing. Even this game had more stars than the game we saw today because Moses was one of the top 12 players of all time. And Moses' five-year run here from 79 to 83, he's the best player in the league. It's it's kind of him and Kareem, but Moses probably the totality of what Moses does over those five years is probably better than Kareem. It's they're one A and one B in some way, and then Kareem and then Moses really from eighty one. This is the first year, 82, 83. For that three year run, he's the best player in the league. So even that year with two under five hundred teams, at least we had an A lister. At least we had Moses. Keep going back to the seventies. There's nothing. I mean, there's a really weird Celtics Cavs series in seventy six where the uh, Cavs, the team that had no stars, they they almost get the Celts. But, you know, the Celts had Havlicek and Cowens and JoJo White, um, Charlie Scott. Like, they Havlicek and Cowens are, I have Havlicek, like, 15th or 16th all the time. Um, so anyway, my point. I cannot believe that this was the conference finals tonight. I can't believe, first of all, the lack of drama. You knew the Hawks didn't have it from when it was 10-2. Um, you just knew that Milwaukee is winning. I don't know what's going to happen in game six. Um, You have Phoenix sitting there. Phoenix is now almost a two-to-one favorite to win the title, mainly because they're just the healthiest. So, um, I don't know. I I feel weirdly disappointed. I love the conference finals. There's always like real drama in the conference finals. We got a Suns Clippers series that was good. In this series, this Bucks-Hawks series, felt like it had a chance to at least be... you know, it wasn't going to be artistically the greatest thing we ever saw, but at least it had a chance to be unpredictable. Maybe we would get a Trey Young villain game, all that stuff. And the basketball gods, they just hate us this year. I don't know what happened, but I don't know what we did. But uh, anyway, I'd like to commemorate it with the opening of this podcast by telling you that was the worst conference finals game of all time. I really think it was. One more topic, and then we're going to bring in Curtis and Manix. So Chris Paul, I had him in May 2000. I do my pyramid every month or like every six weeks or so. And I move guys around and, you know, try to figure stuff out. Chris Paul, a year ago was was 42 in my pyramid. By the time we got through round one when they got past the Lakers and it became clear they were probably going to beat the Nuggets too. I moved Chris Paul up to 30 in my pyramid, level three. He's the last player in level three. Before that, it was Stockton was the last player. Now Chris Paul. So when I wrote my book, he was 90th. Heading into the conference finals, I had him 30th. And here's what that list looks like. So here's top 40 right now. Harden 40, Walt Frazier thirty-nine. Jason Kidd, Steve Nash, Dave Cowens, Willis Reed, David Robinson, Bill Walton, Rick Barry, John Stockton, Chris Paul. And then it jumps to level four. Level four, it's really the differentiator is, is titles and finals. So you go level four, 29, Scottie Pippen, 28, Dwayne Wade, 27, Isaiah, Bob Cousy, I had Kawhi at 25. We'll talk about that in one second. Barkley, 24. KG, 23. Carl Malone, 22. Bob Pettit, 21. Julius Irving 20. Elgin Baylor, Dirk Nowitzki, and then John Havlicek as the last guy, number 17. Well, Chris Paul is now in the finals. I'm going to leave him at 30. I think if he wins a title the question becomes, does he get to the, in my top 20? By the way, this is my list. I'm not saying this is the official list. You're probably thinking I'm insane right now that anyone even cares about this. But I'm just telling you, I I put a lot of thought into this over the years. I have my list. I um, really care about this for whatever reason. And if Chris Paul wins the title, it has to move him past Barkley, past Garnett, past Karl Malone, I think. Because I was talking to House about this today and Isaiah Thomas, who I have at 27, and House was like, no, I'm not ready to move him past Isaiah Thomas yet. Even though statistically, the resume of Chris Paul, um, the, the fact that he's doing stuff at the point guard position that nobody has even approached at his age these last three years, And House's point was just what Isaiah did in that Lakers series, um, what he did against the Blazers. His high-end stuff in the biggest pressure moments was better than anything I've seen at the point guard position except for Magic. Fair. So you put Chris past Isaiah. Statistically, he's there easily. Uh, The resume is better. The All-NBA is the longevity, everything. The question is the ceiling of Isaiah versus Chris Paul. Well, last night, Chris Paul has the classic, I've got this game, where it's just like, I don't, I, I'm not going down. I am not fucking losing this game. And that is honestly the last level for a player. For the great players, it's the reason we always uh, were annoyed by Carl Malone, for example, because he just didn't have that one piece in him. The, I am not fucking losing this game. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not going home. I'm not risking this. I'm stepping on this other team's neck. That's what I'm doing. Chris had never had a game like that either. You know, Isaiah had games like that. You go through this, Barkley in 93, he did it to the Spurs. He did it a bunch of times over his career. He definitely had it. Garnett, never really had it. And then in 04, it creeped out a little. And took care of the Kings, even though you know Weber was pretty banged up by that point. But then in 08, the Celtics were not going to win the title unless he had a couple moments where his he had a couple "I got this" moments, and he actually pulled them out and he did it. Um, but then you go through to Pettit, Julius Erving, Elgin Baylor. Go look at Elgin Baylor's stats in the '62 Finals; it's ludicrous. Dirk Nowitzki, most famously for him, 2006, but then 2011. When he just rips through the league, actually wins the title. Um, My point is, Chris had not had a moment like this. And now at least he has heading into the finals. So if they win the title, he's, he, I, in my, sorry, House, I think he passes Isaiah and he probably passes Kuzi. And I think I have to move Kawhi a couple spots back because of, I was projecting with him with the, uh, you know, well, you know, they might make the finals again with this Clippers team, but then not only does it get hurt, he's had some really untimely injuries, you know? And I think the unreliability of that, maybe he goes backwards a little bit. So I think I have the 25th spot available for Chris Paul. And if he's awesome in these finals and he's clearly the best player, maybe he jumps higher than that. Anyway, I did not expect any of this. Uh, You think about Chris Paul, (laughs) they're trying to dump his salary a couple of years ago. Um, you think about his age, it just all of this seemed inconceivable. This is one of the most shocking, late career um, legacy flips that I can ever remember. You know he, you know what's a good one, a good example of this actually is Tom Brady. Because I think Brady it was Brady remaining and Brady's gonna go down and he's gonna basically be the Jeter of football and he had some great stats and all that stuff, but. You know, they, he, you could always ding him on either, well, other guys, won. you know, Montana won as many rings and, you know, Manning had better stats and there was ways to ding him. And then when he won the last three and especially the Falcons game, the argument just became unassailable and he completely shifted how we were ever going to think about him historically. Elway was another one. Elway is the most famous football example of the late title, late career title, changing her legacy. I think West, you know, West was a guy, he was always the bridesmaid, never the bride in these finals games that you just could never get past the Celtics. And then finally the 72 Lakers, uh, him and Wilts just get it done. And I have West 11 on my pyramid right now. Um, if he doesn't ever win the title, I think it would have been really hard to put him in the Pantheon, but um, but he's in there. So listen, this, the stakes for Chris Paul are pretty obvious. He's trying to win the title. He doesn't care about my stupid list. But when you talk about the point God, that nickname, which just always rang hollow for me when he had never made the finals. Now he has a chance to flip that narrative to to really go down as one of the great veteran star coming into a team in any sport and just transforming the culture and the ceiling of that team overnight. This Suns team, they hadn't made the playoffs since two thousand and ten. If you go look at their basketball reference every year, they're just awful year after year after year. They didn't make the playoffs last year, and he shows up and now they're in the finals and there's just not a lot of not a lot of doppelgangers for this, certainly in basketball history, but really in any sport so um I'm rooting for it. I add everybody that's left. I think it's the most fun story, and I really respect that guy and I respect uh you know, especially what he did last night. So that's the good side. The bad side of this playoffs are all the injuries and then the fact that we have an Eastern Conference Finals that's just, just uh, depleted, to say the least. Hopefully those guys come back. The good side is that Phoenix, Chris Paul, this is uh, one of the more compelling stories we've had in a long, long time. Um, we're gonna talk about it with Brian Curtis and Chris Mannix in a second. Let's take a break. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe Spring. On the way, warmer temperatures, more time outside, more time away from your home. Do yourself a favor. Make sure you're doing what you can to protect your place and get a Simply Safe home security system, comprehensive protection for your whole home, a great way to keep you and your loved ones safe. What if you're going out for Easter for six hours? You don't think the burglars are going to figure that out? That y'all packed up your car at like 11.30 on Easter and you drove off somewhere? Yeah, all they need is an hour. I'm not the only one singing Simply Safe's praises. Simply Safe named Best Home Security System in 2024 by U.S. News and World Report, recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. Protect your home today. I use Simply Safe and love it. My listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when they sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit SimplySafe.com slash BS. Don't wait. That is simplysafe.com slash BS. All right. He's the editor at large of The Ringer. He once left ESPN because they wouldn't give him $5 million a year. Uh, He is (laughs) Brian Curtis. (laughs) What is it about the NBA finals that uh, every year there's announcing salary drama? I don't even
2: I was involved one of the years. It's every, every year with ESPN. I don't know what happens. It's weird how that always happens, isn't it? And it seems like it's like, I can't tell if it's coming from the announcer or one particular executive who might, you know, be, have a real interest in putting those stories out there. I just, I can't tell. Well,
0: you know, you know, my theory, Curtis, anytime they put the salary of either what they want or what they're already making in one of those stories, it's, that's, that's the network move to try to basically undermine the talent a little bit. That's always how I feel when they do that. But what Mm -hmm. do I know? What do I know? Uh, Because the fans read that. They're like, whoa, they're making what? Um, Anyway, I wanted to talk about some media stuff. We'll start with Marv Albert because... This is going to be it pretty soon. And we might have uh, Jay Adonde made the joke about if Giannis comes back for game seven, five minutes before game seven, we could have Marv do here comes Giannis and, and do the <laughs> 1970 final finals callback. But uh, we're
2: at the tail end of Marv. What are your, what
0: are your final week thoughts here?
2: I think it's incredibly important to remember that the first year he does the national NBA telecast is 9091, which is also Michael Jordan's first title. So he comes in with amazing timing. And you and I are old enough to remember when the NBA was like everybody's third choice for a sports media career behind baseball and football. Yeah, And I just remember that first year of Marv doing the NBA on NBC and watching it and going, oh my God, this guy's not just a great announcer. He's actually a basketball nerd. He actually Mm. loves pro basketball. In a way that I don't think I'd heard a national announcer express in quite the same way. Like, I think I've written this for the ringer, but like the way that Zach Lowe writes about basketball, you write about basketball. That was the way Marv announced basketball. Like, oh, Middleton, beautiful move, you know? Oh, Chris Paul, beautiful pass. He just, he had this appreciation for it for its own sake. And you know we yeah. had Dick Stockton in the 80s, Brent in the 80s, but I just never got the same vibe that that was it for them. And that and Marv was exactly where he most wanted to be in the world when he was calling those games. That that's that's the first thing that stood out to me.
0: Yeah, basketball announcing from a national level, a pretty storied history of bad combinations and bad decisions. I did a whole I think in my book I did like two pages about just how how over and over again how many mistakes they made cuz they would always just put the famous ex star in the booth with no rhyme or reason to whether the person was going to be good or not. So Oscar Robertson was in there. I think he got, I think he got kind of pushed out during a, during a playoffs in 1975, I think. Um, you had Bill Russell was in there, Elgin Baylor. Um, you had Pat Summerall, Announcing basketball. Then you had <laughs> Stockton and Heinzen, who everybody felt like was a Celtics homer, and he was trying really hard not to be a Celtics homer, but he obviously was. He, was, he bled Celtic green. So we never really found the right combination. It didn't feel like until it was uh, Marv and Fratello. And that, you know, it, w- it was his love for basketball, his sense of humor. I, When my parents got divorced, I moved to Connecticut for eighth grade, and I got to hear him do Knicks games. It it was a revelation. It, you know, you'd heard kind of the rumors, and he had done some NBC sports stuff, and done boxing and things like that. He'd done some football games, so I'd heard him in other platforms, but I'd never heard somebody with the rhythm of the game that sounded like, you know, somebody that cared as much as I did. And I think you even felt it uh, during that Hawks game when Giannis got hurt, when the Hawks were playing really well, and Marv was getting into it, and Herder had a three, and Marv did the Kevin. Herder, you know, he did the pause <laughs> in the name. And I was like, oh, old school Marv, bringing it back. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's hard not to be nostalgic. He's certainly the greatest ever. I think Breen has approached him in a lot of ways. But Marv being first gets the advantage. But I do think Breen, who reveres Marv and grew up listening to him and respects him and really has cribbed some of
2: Marv's style, uh, I think he has carried the torch. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I had, it's very funny. I had a famous announcer tell me a couple of years ago, if people don't understand the difference between prime Marv and prime Breen, I don't know what to tell them. Yeah. Because there is a difference. And it was a sense, I think with Marv. And again, I'm with you with Breen, man. If if you're in Breen's hands to call a game, I feel great. He's awesome. He's technically all just right where he needs to be. But Marv had this weird, funny side about him. Yes. He, he had uh, all these other tools and he would be like, I remember one time he was calling the playoffs with Bill Walton and they were doing the draft lottery at halftime. And they went to the you know, that shot where they show the ping pong balls in the hopper. And Marv comes back and he's just like, Bill Walton mesmerized by the flow of the ping pong balls, <laughs> And Walton doesn't even respond. I don't think Walton said anything. And it was almost Marv is Marv is very different than David Letterman. But they had this commonality that I felt with both of them that they would make jokes, and you, you and I'd be sitting there as kids watching on TV and go, "I don't think everybody got that joke, but yeah. I got that joke." And in right. a way, that's kind of the greatest feeling of somebody funny on TV when you feel like, "Oh, I got that. I hear. I know what you're doing." Maybe not everybody else appreciates it. I love that.
0: Yeah, and he took Mike Fratello, who a half decent color guy decent sure. in his prime. He's okay. Um, when he was with Marv, he became transcendent because Marv was selling him and putting him over. He was like Ric Flair. He was gave, gave <laughs> Fratello a nickname. He was calling him the czar. Um, was just selling him left and right, cracking jokes. And I think there was this last level. And Breen is, I love Breen. He's an awesome guy. There's a sense of humor level and a sarcasm that Marv had at his peak that, um, just, you just haven't seen it. Al Michaels has it. Yes. Pretty, it's pretty rare for somebody at that level. Joe Buck has it. I think he's developed into it over the years, but, um, you know, that for me, like growing up in, uh, in the eighties, what really pushed Marv over the top was the Letterman appearances Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and him going on live at five, which was like the, uh, the big New York afternoon show and things like that. And his personality would always come out in those and then was finally cemented in the mid 80s. Chris Elliott, when he was on Letterman, he decided to do this Marv character and he would come (laughs) out with this wig and he would do these Albert Achievement Awards. And they were like, really watch this. Oh, and it would just be like people getting kicked in the balls. And so it felt like that cemented Marv even further. Like he became this uh, parodied character on Letterman. But man, what a career you think like it goes back uh to the to the sixties with the Knicks and then the seventies finals was his breakout moment. He also did a lot of hockey and I you know I I don't know if he's a Mount Rushmore guy, but he's in the conversation, right?
2: From Marv? Oh yeah, yeah I think he's, I think he's and, and I think For he's play Rushmore. by play guys? So yeah.
0: who's who's Mount Rushmore then?
2: Forever? Michaels has
0: to be on there.
2: Yeah I think Michaels and Marv are the, are pretty comparable characters in terms of like really, really great at play by play, and also really fun you know, they had extra gears to them um we're talking national guys here, summerro, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: just for pure I think summer's gotta be there for well, but also like there was with football it's just there was a weightiness. And a rhythm to his games and how he clicked with Madden that we just haven't heard before since in my opinion.
2: Yeah. I think I, the Marv thing that, that you pointed out is just that he's so he was so much better than any national basketball announcer, or at least one that had a big run to come along at his time. You know, it was like somebody yep. coming and just resetting the home run record by 40 home runs. And and by the way, you mentioned random color guys. There were that was Marv's whole career at NBC. People now yeah. remember, people now were like, hey, look at Magic Johnson's tweets. They forget that Magic Johnson's tweets were announcing the NBA finals with Marv. Yep. Magic yeah, would he come d- in and be like, Marv, this is great first quarter action in the NBA finals we're watching on NBC. And Marv would be like, uh, Magic with the plug uh, in the middle of the first quarter. <laughs>
0: yeah, he he definitely worked with a lot of different people. And, and, you know, sometimes we just have the wrong partner. I think Chris Weber was an atrocious partner for him. I don't know why it happened. I I'm continue to be dumbfounded by it, even though they're no longer a team. And it was interesting watching Grant Hill step in after they got rid of Weber during the season. And Grant Hill's not incredible or anything, but at least Marv's sense of humor started to come out again. Because with Chris Weber, yes. it just sounded like two people on a bad date every single game. <laughs> two people that had nothing in common, no commonality, anything. And at least Grant Hill, like, grew up listening to Marv and kind of gets it and would throw a zinger. And you could feel like Marv kind of come out of a coma basically from a comedy standpoint. So it's been, I think it's been a decent, uh, farewell for him. Obviously he's hit the stage that you and I have talked about on this podcast in the past when the, you know, when the announcers get old, they start mixing up the names. Marv's had a couple of games this year where he's just Convinced that number twenty six is number thirty six for four quarters, you know, and it's not like he doesn't make the mistake one time; he makes it eight times. But he's in his eighties; it's it's going to happen, right? This is this is how it
2: always ends for announcers. It always. I remember Vern Lundquist once telling me he's like he developed this thing at the end where he just go whoa when something really like amazing and confusing happened, and that would give him like three or four seconds to kind of figure it out, you know. That was kind of like his trick and the color analyst would come in and kind of, oh, well, that's, you know. You yeah. Know, it's like there's all these little by the way, I, this is as basketball nerd, I you gotta tell me this. Who was Marv's best partner ever?
0: I think the partner that he clicked with the best nationally was Fratello. Okay. But the guy that I thought he was the best at was, was his name John Anderees, I think was his name. And the MSG games and the mid eighties. And I thought they were great together. Um, they, they play this game sometimes on hardwood classics, the, uh, Isaiah versus Bernard King, the 1984 game five Pistons Knicks when it, when it was a best of five series and Isaiah single-handedly brings the Pistons back. Marv's doing that game and you can, that's like peak Marv because it's an awesome game. Bernard King takes it back in overtime and the Knicks win and, Um, just, I always felt like at MSG, those were his best days. I I think nationally it speaks to the bigger issue that we've really had for my entire life with basketball is, you know, there's really not a lot of great color guys. There's never the Collinsworth for NBA. Van Gundy's probably the closest, but you know, and Van Gundy's had some really good moments in the playoffs. I actually think he's had the, a better postseason for him. Like it's, it's been up there. I think he's very, very good. I don't think he's great, though. I don't know if we have a great color guy, and I don't know if we've
2: really ever had one. Do you think we've ever had one? Steve There's Curry? no Madden. There's no John Madden of the NBA, and I don't think. I mean, I think the guys we talk about are yeah. kind of oh. like the Matt Millen of the NBA. <laughs> you know, they're the good. They're good, right? They can totally do a right. good game. But they're just not like, and I think I've asked people about this and they always say it's the nature of basketball, that basketball is a play by play announcer sport and that you just don't have windows for the analyst to talk in the same way you do in football and baseball. So maybe, maybe it's just that you can't be good, but I mean, again, thinking about the 90s i mean isaiah thomas announced the finals magic johnson announced the finals steve jones announced the finals it was i guess doug collins is probably somewhere on this list you know when you talk about guys that were were good you know but it's it's not a long list yep
0: steve kerr i thought was the best i'd heard and he had he crossed over with marm for i don't remember how many years but that was probably Marv's best national partner, just from a talent standpoint. And Steve Kerr got the Marv jokes, you know, he, yes, he could speak the language, so to speak. And I think that was important too. But I I think, you know, it's interesting. I was really glad I announced, I announced a couple NBA games, but we, me and Jalen did one with Tarico, and the job, it made more sense to me why nobody's been great at it. Like Madden was. It's really hard to get a feel for the game from those seats. I know, I know this sounds like a weird thing to say because it's like, what do you mean? You're courtside. You're in the middle of it. You don't really have a perspective on the, the wide shot. Like when we're watching games on TV and you can see the spacing and you can see the geometry and all the stuff that you kind of need to see for the game to fall into place. When you're that close, it's, it's just kind of chaotic. And you end up like staring in the TV for replays. And I, I just feel like from a feel standpoint, it's harder. And in a weird way, the fans have the advantage watching it on their widescreen TV at home over the guy who's at you know sitting courtside. So I always wondered if that was a thing. Have you ever talked to an announcer about that? Because I, I was always stunned by how hard that was.
2: I don't think I've ever asked one, but I'm, I'm totally with you. I always wondered how they can get it out of their mouths that quickly from that vantage point because it just seems like an Ian Eagle does it really well and Harlan does it really well. I'm just amazed at how you can how you can sort of process a play in basketball, especially across the court, right? Down the court and across the court that quickly from from those seats. No, I I don't understand it.
0: Yeah, I actually think they'd be better off you know, behind the basket and a little bit up like how the vantage point that you know, the the networks usually have for when they're doing the halftime shows. Cuz I remember like we watched the um the the Spurs heat finals and the Miami seats where you were like kind of right above and you had this awesome angle of it. And it was like that, you could see everything and you could see the angles and the way it unfolded. But, um, so Marv's going to be out. Breen now becomes the elder statesman beloved announcer, right? He just mm-hmm. immediately gets that torch. And then Ian Eagle becomes probably the the heir apparent on TNT, I'm guessing. Who do you think gets that job? Is it Harlan or Iron Eagle?
2: I don't know. That, that, you know, they're kind of comparable figures in a way. Because I think they both, Both first of all, if either one of them got it. I think I'd be totally happy listening to either one of them call a conference finals. I would not be upset at that. They're both really technically good. Yeah. They both also are a little weird. <laughs> I mean Harlan, you know, is yeah, has those t- you know with the cats on the field or the streakers on the field, and he's doing his thing, and and even ian Eagle, though he is certainly you know was a student of Marv Albert as young. I mean, you know, he's doing uh, major koalaite, uh, zoo blocka, <laughs> you know, he's <laughs> he's got this this sense of humor that kind of ranges out there, and I think it actually goes to a point I was making at the beginning, which is. Now we have tons of guys who seem like, and, and gals who love basketball, announcing basketball, Harlan, Eagle, Breen, Doris Burke. Like these are people who, when yeah. you listen to call a game, they're like, they don't want to be secretly calling the NFL right now. They want to be right here calling the NBA. They love it. And I think in a way that's part of the legacy of Marv too. I love Doris.
0: And she's a great person. She developed a bad habit over the last year. She calls everybody by their first name, which is just a personal pet peeve for me when I'm listening to it again. <laughs> it is where weird. Where it's like, what a play by Donovan. Rudy, Rudy set him the pick. And then Joe came over and it's like, what are we like at a cocktail party with these guys? Called them by their <laughs> last names. I think like LeBron, Giannis, there's certain guys that are just first name guys like Madonna, but for the most part, uh, I would I would vote for using the last names. By the way, I have a scoop for you. Okay. It's I think it's going to be Stan Van Gundy for TNT next year. As the lead, as analyst. their lead guy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I my my bet. I'm not reporting this, but this is my bet. But I'm betting on Ian Eagle and Stan Van Gundy as the lead group, which would mean we have two Van Gundys, which is interesting because. As I've told the story before, Van Gundy was supposed to be on Countdown with me and Wilbon and Magic when I finally agreed to do it that year, and then Stern blocked it and was like, <laughs> "We don't fuck the Van Gundy." They hated the Van Gundys. Now it seems like they're in a slightly better place with the Van Gundys, but uh, but yeah, I I think we're going to have Van Gundys as the lead guys on on both games. We're going to take a quick break, and then I want to really talk about Instant Replay with you. So we're going to do that next. when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Vrbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Vrbo app. All right, instant replay. This has been in our lives for 40-plus years. I am old enough to remember the game that caused everybody to push for football instant replay. It was when the Oilers should have beaten the Steelers. The Oilers are now the Titans for the young ones keeping score at home. I think it was Mike Renfro caught a touchdown. They ruled it incomplete. It swung the game, and that got the momentum. And we've been on a 40-year odyssey with instant replay ever since. It works. In some cases, I think in tennis, it's been fantastic. It's really, really, really improved tennis in a lot of different ways. Other sports, not as much. Uh, Football, we have a complicated relationship with it. Ultimately, I think it's okay. I'm I'm okay with football replay. The basketball, it's just terrible. And here's how I know it's terrible. It has a 0% approval rating, Brian. (laughs) It, there's nobody in my life who's like, you know, a lot of people give instant replay shit, but I'll tell you, I love it. I'm so glad we have it. I loved when that Clipper Suns game, when the last 90 seconds took 33 minutes to play. I thought it was fucking awesome. When we had five instant replays and five field goals in the last 90 seconds of a close game, that was great. I love when the game stops. I love watching the same replay 10 times. My point is nobody likes this. And at some point when nobody likes something and you're an entertainment company, in this case, you're a league, but really you're a company, you're you're providing entertainment and you're hoping people will pay dollars to go see the entertainment or stream it at their homes and you have something that's failing this badly, the lack of urgency, the lack of transparency, the the lack of just uh, self-admission about... This doesn't fucking work. We have to fix this. We get it. We know this doesn't work. We are, we are going to go back to the drawing board this summer. The fact that they're not saying anything is so dumbfounded to me. And I really think
2: it's terrible. And I don't know what they're doing. What's your take
0: on instant replay?
2: We, we both know that the one way you get sports to change any rule is when it makes a bad TV show because sports is a TV show. That's where the money comes from. That's where everything comes from. And it's made. It made that game last night into a bad TV show. We're yep. gonna stop the game to see if Jay Crowder tripped Nick Batum in a common foul way or in a flagrant foul way. Why are we doing that? Why why are we pausing for that moment? And I just find I just find it makes the game so long. First of all, the game was so long last night for a game that wasn't even close down the stretch. And you just go, I'm just watching that when every one of the the flagrant ones are the ones that really get me. The way they're like, we're going to look at this and decide if this was a regular foul or a flagrant foul. Why does that need a replay to stop everything? Right.
0: Well, you think like there's, there's basic smart moves they can make with this. A foul a foul. You could wait until the TV timeout and then review whether it's a flagrant or not. And then if it is come out of the timeout and be like, Hey, we looked at that again. It was a flagrant. We're going to shoot an extra free throw here. I think everybody would be fine with that. What we're not fine with is just stopping the flow of the game for five minutes when we have commercials that do that anyway. Or if we're gonna, if we're gonna stop the game for that long, run the commercials. Then there's got to be some better way to do this that d- didn't involve adding 25 minutes to the game. And what's nuts to me is we just came out two years ago. Adam talking about uh, now I sound like Doris. Adam Silver <laughs> talking about. Uh, The, the, the whole, we got to speed up the game. We get it. The flow. Should we go with 40 minute halves? It's like, you can't, you're not speeding up the game. You're doing the opposite. You're in molasses. So I just feel like there's, here, here are two ideas I have for you that I think would make this, actually, I have a couple, I have more than two. One is when it's, when it's, when the foul's already been called and they're deciding whether it's a common foul or a flagrant foul. Just do that during a timeout or do it at halftime. Just let us know later what what it was. I don't need to know right away. We're good. Keep the game going. It's not like we're not adding fouls to somebody. It's not a technical. If it's a flagrant two possibility, stop the game. But how many times have we had a flagrant two in a game I've watched this year? Maybe five. Um, So that'd be one thing. Second thing, I I think they really have to narrow what they're reviewing. I don't ever want to see another block and charge reviewed again. Get that out. Also get out the thing that we had at the near the end of game two, when Beverly crashed into Booker and caused the ball to go out of bounds. And then they slow it down to one 100th of a second. It's like, Oh, that actually barely touched Booker after Beverly knocked it. And it's like, at some point we're just violating the spirit of the game. Beverly knocked the ball out of bounds. It might've grazed Booker because of it, but Beverly would still caused it. And if we're playing basketball, we know he caused it. So, Why are we reviewing that? And then on the flip side, like if we're reviewing that, but then we're not reviewing that somebody missed a field goal because somebody else slapped the backboard and the ref missed it. And we just let that go. So it's like, we're letting some stuff go. we're, We're hyper, not letting other stuff go. I don't get that either. And then the third thing is I just would have the possession arrow. I would bring it back. I think it works in college and all these moments where it's like the refs kind of don't know what happened. So they just like jump ball. Let's spend five minutes reviewing it. Just be like jump ball position arrow and keep mm-hmm. the game moving. I think the fans would be okay with it. The whole point is keep the game moving. It's an entertainment product. And I don't think this would be that hard to fix. Like if we, if each team football, would it have three, two challenges per yeah. half, both teams? Perhaps. Per I. I I'm good with that. Two challenges, perhaps both teams. And then maybe we review whether a three is a two, like the, so the Durant situation would be the big one, right? Durant against the bucks. He makes what seems like it might've been the game winning shot, but they review it. But the thing with those is it takes 30 seconds to know whether the guy's foot was on the line or not. I still feel like we could review those. What's killer is the block charge stuff. And do you like, so I I just threw seven ideas at you. Like,
2: did any of that seem like a better idea than what we're already doing? <laughs> you know, I think it all did, and I think the the it, the football example is a good is a good one here because one football just stops all the time. So if you stop to review something and let Mike Pereira come in and talk about it, it just kind of is part of the TV show now, and I don't mind it at all. Yeah. really. But what football has done successfully, and I know they've gone around a couple of times on this, is they're only going to review certain things. You're just not, you cannot review everything. You, you know, refs are going to miss some calls. You can review out of bounds, right? You can review two feet down, whatever it is, yep. but you just can't review. You can review turnovers, but you can't review everything. And I totally am with you on that. I just think you have to be able to just take certain calls as annoying as they may be and be like, we just can't review this. This isn't, this is going to be block charge is going to be the referee's discretion. We can do out of bounds. We can maybe do a goaltend toward the end of the game. We certainly do Kevin Durant's foot on the line. That all seems easy. But you just have to kind of shrink down what you're actually going to review.
0: It seems like they live in fear of the Mike Renfro moment. And now they've overcompensated the other way. But then when you think about all the stuff that they miss, and we're okay with it. Like, I think it was game seven, Philly, um, Atlanta. Somebody made a play and they showed the replay where the guy jumped in the air, he landed, and then he took the shot and it went in. And it counted for two points. And they're like, whoa, yeah, hey, his feet were down before he took the shot. And we're like, okay, cool. Well, they gave him the basket. <laughs> it's fine. Let's <laughs> move on. What's the next player? Like It wasn't like there was like a national riot because this guy's feet came down. I think it was shake Milton before he got the ball off, but that's just the way it goes with this stuff. So I, that's the part that just breaks my brain. We are, you know, fanatically picking over these dumb plays like that Patrick Beverly Booker play. And then other plays it's like, oh, did DeAndre hit the backboard and make that ball? ball? Oh, it turns out he did. Okay. Ref missed it. It's fine. (laughs) It's basketball. I think when it's be, when it's a situation where KD hits a three that would have won the game, but his foot was on the line, yeah, we got to review it. But that should take 30 seconds. And, you know, it, been, there's been talk about should you have a fourth referee who's right there with the instant replay? Like, my short answer is, fuck yeah. Let's have a fourth person. It can be <laughs> retired refs. How hard is this? So you're playing two play during the playoffs. There's two games a night, max. Put the fucking refs at mid court with the instant replay thing and let's get this going. T- to me, tennis is the model and Wimbledon is on right now. Um, they've mastered it. It's great. They, and this was this thing that hung over tennis all the time where it was like, there seemed like there were no rhyme or reason to some of these umpire calls, then they, they fixed it and it was ready. And now it's much better. So uh, I, just, I just want Adam to take charge of something here. Like mm-hmm. own something. I, you have this situation where over and over again, he, he seems like he's a substitute teacher sometimes where he doesn't want to like offend the parents. And you know, the, uh, the kid in the front row, uh, put his piss in a bag and threw it against the chalkboard it's like I, oh, we better clean that up. Don't, don't kick him out of school. Like I, I at some point, like you got to crack down and try to take control of your league. And I'm not, I'm I just don't feel like he's doing it.
2: The fundamental problem with all these leagues in the age of the big screen televisions and how good everything looks at home now is that you can just be so worried that everybody on Twitter is going to see something that the refs miss. But I think you point out, you make a really good point, which is that there are missed calls all the time. And as long as they're not the egregious late game, oh, my God, that changed the course of basketball history call, people will mostly roll with it. Because, by the way, those are going to be in an NBA game anyway. You know, guys flopping and getting a call guys, you know, selling a call. Like it's all part of basketball. And I just, yeah, I'm with you. I, I I think more rhyme or reason, more in charge and shrinking the court, shrinking the length of a game is, is where I want to be. Clear path fouls are a great example.
0: That's something we can review at commercial. They, you know, it was a foul. They're getting the ball anyway. And it's like, oh, you get an extra foul shot because it was a clear path foul. Mm -hmm. Well. Five minutes later, we had a timeout. Hey, we just realized that was a clear path foul. We looked at it. So we're going to come out of timeout and they're going to shoot two free throws for it. I don't know a single basketball fan would be like, wait a second, fuck this. What, wait, what? You're going to shoot the free throws five minutes later? People would be delighted that we didn't have to, you know, slow down. I Look, as you said, when it becomes a bad TV show, that's when you have to fix stuff. And the league has had crisis points in the past. Two thousand four is a great example. This the the defense became better than the offense. Uh the games were too slow. The fans didn't enjoy them. We had that Pacers Piston series when it was like, what were those games? Like 77 to 70, 73 to 69. And all of us were like, what is happening? And then they fixed it. They, you know, they they got rid of some of the hand checking, they changed some of the legal defense stuff. They eventually put in the twenty-four second. Now is fourteen seconds after an offense rebound, and they they just quickened the pace in a bunch of different ways, and it worked. And now they are at this point. And the reason I'm making a big deal out of it is just, I just don't feel any urgency from the league side. I really don't. I don't. I don't. I haven't heard one. Have you? Have you heard one quote from no. anybody? No but like, yeah, we know this isn't working. We, this is a
2: real priority for us. We have to fix this. Then we're getting more reviews, not less. I also feel there's a bigger point here, which is that basketball telecasts are always on the verge of seeming way too choppy. You know, I see this with CBS when they do college basketball and they cram all those commercials into the last couple of minutes of a game. You know, have a timeout, it's a tense game. And then you're coming out to a commercial and you just, as a viewer, you're completely taken out of whatever drama there is. And watching ESPN, watching them last night, Yeah. by the way, and you're you're the ESPN uh, studio expert here, so who decided that it was a good idea at halftime to have every ESPN person offer one soundbite in order and then just go to commercial without any discussion about what just happened in the game like you would see on TNT? Like what viewer wants is like, you know what? I want everybody on here to get a touch. I want Jalen to get a touch. I want Jay Williams to get a touch. I want Woj to get a touch. And then I want to go to commercial. That's just not how people think. It's insane.
0: I mean, I could write a PhD about this after my two traumatic years doing that show. You've three and a half minutes. So if you have a host, the host is going to bring you back in that's 30 seconds. Now we're down to three minutes and you also have to leave room for the last 20 seconds when the host brings you back to commercial. So at that point, I've lost 25 seconds and then 20. So now I'm playing with two, two minutes, 45 seconds for three people. Nobody can make a really good point in probably less than 30 seconds on those shows. So... That's why they do it that way. They want to make sure everybody gets the ball once and then you're probably out of time. You're right. It's ridiculous. Guess what? Guess what? You don't need four people to do a three and a half minute television segment. And I I was always like dumbfounded because they really don't want to hurt people's feelings, right? Like you could just have Maria and Jalen and just have a back and forth for three and a half minutes. But then what do you do with the other two people that did the pregame show? What they should do is have the pregame show and then just keep one person and then have a real back and forth. The, 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 reason why TNT is so good, it's not just cause Barkley and Kenny, like those guys and Ernie, those guys are the best studio people we've ever had. They actually have a seven and a half minute halftime. Like watch yes. it. Think how much time they have. They have time to go all the way around. Kenny has time to go to the big board, do his pictures thing, run back And then they have like two more minutes because they actually care about that show. I didn't, ESPN has never cared about that show for as much money as they throw at it. They just don't care about it. And then at the end of games, they throw it right to SportsCenter because they care more about Van Pelt than they do about the studio show. So the game ends. The one time you really want your studio guys is after the game. What happened? Like, think about all our Ringer podcasts. We don't do podcasts before the game. We do them after. Cause it's like, what happened? What'd you think? That's the whole point. Their, their countdown guys are gone and then mm-hmm. they'll bring them back. And it's like Van Pelt comes on and then he interviews Van Gundy and Jackson. I just listen to them for three hours. I got to hear them again. And then, <laughs> then they'll bring in like,
2: I, 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 all of it is just nonsensical. I'm really confused by it. It sounds like you are too. I think we've hit on something here, which is the touches problem. Everybody having to get their touches, you know, cause I, you know, the NBA on NBC, which we're talking about a second ago. They used to come at halftime and it was like Costas and Pat Riley. And that was it. You know, it was like two people. And now not only do you have the four touches at halftime, then they go back to the court and Breen gets a touch. Van Gundy gets a touch. Mark Jackson gets a touch. Rachel Nichols gets a touch. We have we have two sound from both locker rooms, which is usually completely uninteresting. Like, oh, guys, come on, hang in there. Here we go. So it's like you've heard. What is that like eight or nine different voices? Yeah. And and you don't have a single idea in your head that like Barkley would have given you on TNT or something like that where they would again actually had a conversation. I mean, think think of Barkley coming back at that one Bucks game. It was against the Sixers, I want to say, right, where he was like Milwaukee's going to win, but this is the dumbest team ever. Like that yep. was that again, you take something from halftime and whether he's full of shit or not, you're like, "I remember that." That's a good that's that's interesting, and then the other guys can can argue with him or whatever, but it's like it's actual human interaction, not overproduced too many people like TV for TV's sake. I, I just don't like that. Uh,
0: Barkley, yes, uh, during the Milwaukee game was great. But with the game, Giannis got hurt at halftime. It goes to him and he's just like, he's like, he, he crushes Milwaukee. But he's like, this is what I worry about with them. They don't want to step on your throat. It's mm-hmm. a team that it's, they're, they're a very good team that's perfectly content to compete, but they don't have that killer instinct. You saw it last night with Chris Paul, right? Chris Paul is like, I can smell this and and stepped on the Clippers neck. And that's what I'm walking down. But my point is Barkley identified it and said it in a really smart, big picture, clear way. But you can do that when you know you have time. And I, listen, I was in those situations for two years where it's just like, First of all, especially if somebody takes too long, like Wilbon, I love Wilbon, but sometimes he would take like a minute. He'd have have the first minutes. Now all of a sudden, (laughs) Jalen and I are looking at 40 seconds combined to get our points out. And you're just thinking like, I just want to get a point out as fast as I can versus like a point that actually has some depth that has a chance to breathe and have people react. That's the other thing that's missing. When you're talking about like the, it's just going around the table, basically, would you call it? The 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 touches? yeah. The point, 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 the point 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 point. Nobody's yeah. reacting to anybody. So they might as well be in four to, They might as well be in a Zoom.
2: Why are they at a table together? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the NFL shows do this too. I think CBS, you know, it's like, oh, let's get Phil Sims and then late Burleson or Howie Long is going to give us 15 seconds. I'm like, this sucks. Stop well, the, yeah,
0: the NFL is worse. The, the five people, um, the five people at the table and then the halftime where it's like, We got to get Terry Bradshaw more involved. He's going to do the highlights. It's like, what? (laughs) Terry Bradshaw barely knows where he is. He's going to be narrating the first half of the Cardinals Rams game. So I, I just think there's so much laziness with this stuff, with the, with the, with just how they approach the studio stuff. And, you know, honestly, do we need three people for an NBA broadcast booth? I don't think so. Do, I, does anybody think we need three? I just you're, think it's a two-man job. Against
2: this. You're famously against
0: this. Yeah, because especially after having done the games, it goes so fast. Like you'll have, you know, it's just, there's so much action and the play-by-play dominates all that stuff. So it's, they just fall into habits. They do it with the draft too, where they, they want to produce it. And I did the I did the 13 and 14 drafts where they want to produce it. Because they care more. The producers are always about, you know, they want to control things. They don't want things to go wrong, right? That's their job. It's, It's, I want things to go seamlessly and really, really awesomely. So they'll have these things like, you know, Billis after every pick. Billis is great. I loved working with him. He would have 75 seconds to talk about the guy, right? There was like this cookie cutter way to do each one where it was like, Reese would talk about the pick, blah, blah, blah watch the guy go up. Then Billis does 75 seconds. And then the other two guys quickly have time to react to the pick before we get to the interview, which is always bad. And then all of a sudden it's the next pick. But the problem is, especially in the first 10 picks of the draft, like there's a lot going on. There's major, you know, major storylines. There's Marvin Bagley getting picked over Luka Doncic. There's shit like that. And you, you have like 40 seconds to react
2: to it, you know, and I don't get that either. There's a lot I don't get, Brian. This is when television has problems, is when you're producing television for other producers. Yes. Or for for your pals in the business and not producing it for fans. And by the way, I'd say the same thing about writing. You know, as soon as you start doing it and you're saying, who, who is this show for? Is it for basketball fans sports fans or is it for you know my sizzle reel for the sports emmys and i just think when you start doing the second thing it it becomes bad and it just be, it feels again it feels like you're producing for producing sake rather than i'm going to make a really effective tv show that people are going to like well you know what's the single most
0: nuts decision how is Stephen a not on countdown
2: great question but i mean what are we doing <laughs> the like, most powerful person at, at ESPN, but not on the NBA pregame show.
0: How is he not on the, how, the halftime show should just be him and Jalen. I don't even need anybody else. Like, what'd you think? I, can I hear Stephen A's thoughts? I really care. <laughs> I would have loved his thoughts immediately after the, the uh, Chris Paul game. They've, they've tapped into something with Wilbon, but I, I just, you know, Stephen A. I I just enjoy his stuff. I would sh- just try to put him on, the show somewhere at some point. It's, it's all very strange. It does feel like, um, I know, I know, uh, Jalen's contract is up. It sounds like Maria Taylor might not, her contract's up before the last game in the finals. And, you know, as always with ESPN, it just seems like things are, uh, things are in motion. Jalen's had how many countdown partners at this point? Is it's it like, Marv. it's gotta be double figures, right?
2: <laughs> it's like Marv. He said, he's had his own Maddie Gukas and his, own. yeah, he said like 11 magic. people,
0: 11 people, yeah. in nine years. But it feels like once again, we're going to start moving around. It's always interesting how the people behind the scenes never change. though. it's mm. always the talent, the talent's always moving, but it's never the behind the scenes people. Um, any, uh, any
2: finals media storylines you're looking at before we go? I'm a, um, ma- the Chris Paul in that's coming. I think I'm going to write about this for the ringer. I'm a man. Oh God. Know, yeah. It's gonna be, it's gonna be amazing. That I'm interested in the year of the old guy. Our pal Jason Gay wrote about this in the journal Cut when Mickelson won. Right, we've had Brady, we've had Mickelson, we've had Elio Castro Nevis at the Indy 500. It's mm. it, the the year of the old guys thing is is kind of hilarious. Makes us old guys feel better about ourselves. Yeah, I, a couple
0: things like that. And everybody's been complaining or not complaining, but saying about oh, the NBA, all these superstars, they they lost. The finals is going to be a disaster. I Listen, Chris Paul versus Giannis is a good finals from a star standpoint. Giannis is an up and coming guy that needed at some point a bigger platform and, you know, a bigger stage, which he's about to get. And this is a guy who has a chance to be an all timer potentially. And then Chris Paul, um, I feel like is really famous. And, and And it's a combination of he's been in our lives for 16 years now. But also the State Farm ads, which is, I think, one of the best ad campaigns we've had. I just feel like everybody knows who Chris Paul is. On top of it, he has the story that is everybody's favorite sports story. The old guy trying to get the ring. Is there mm-hmm. is there is there a better and safer bet for a good sports story than that? It's the old John Elway thing. It always works. It always wins. Jerry West trying to get it in the 70s. You go way back. It's It's a win every
2: time. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he's had like a reported COVID diagnosis, the sprained shoulder against the Lakers. I mean, he's actually had like four storylines within the larger Chris Paul tries to get a ring story Yeah, over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, no, it's, um, I don't, you know, you know me, I don't, I, when people start talking about, how ESPN executives are going to be mad that it's Milwaukee and, you know, and I just Phoenix in the finals. I just like, who gives a shit? Like if you, if it, if you don't like this basketball, if you'd rather have other stars in the finals, other teams. Okay. But yeah, why would we, why would I, I'm not getting any money if ESPN gets higher ratings or lower ratings. It doesn't matter to me at all. All it cares if it's a good series and I'm compelled by it. That's what I'm rooting for. Also, we had Cleveland in four straight finals. We did fine. We're okay. It was okay,
0: Brian Curtis. We can hear you on the excellent Press Box podcast. I look forward to reading your Chris Paul story, and we've been working together officially for ten years now. Can you believe it? Yeah, we're we're like in our second decade together. Look <laughs> <See>, at <laughs> they, the, si- the, the sirens in the background. The sirens are even over. excited. Second they finally decade, caught for on to us. Yeah, but I've loved working with you, and uh, and I'm excited for decade number two. You got it. Same here, Bill. All right, I'll talk to you. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at Michelob slash courtside LDA 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at Michelob slash courtside LDA 21 and up. All right. Our friend Chris Mannix is here from Sports Illustrated and you're always popping up all over the place. You'll pop on random boxing cards. I, ne- I never know. You always keep me on my toes. Um, The Chris Paul, Chris Paul makes the finals. People love this. They love when the old guy, the quest for the ring, stuff like that. Watching that game last night, there were all these different storylines going on, um, including some real animosity, I felt like, with the Clippers and the Suns. But uh, I'm not the first person to say this. That was the complete package Chris Paul game. It was the, I'm putting my team on my back game. There's no way we're fucking losing this game. I'm going to throw in a couple flops here. I am uh I'm super annoying. I'm super competitive. I am the fulcrum of this team. It was kind of like weirdly his defining game. I loved it.
1: Yeah, I loved it too. I was in Phoenix for game 5 and like watching them kind of choke that game away, you you, you had to know that in the back of Chris Paul's mind, like he loses this game 6 and every story for 48 hours is 3-1. Like Chris mm. Paul, could he lose 3-1 one, one more time? I feel like that was had to have been a motivating factor for him uh, in this game. I mean it it probably wasn't the only reason he played that well. It wasn't the only reason. The Suns won that game. I did feel like after game 5 we saw like the last stand of the Clippers. We saw everything Paul George had to give. You had a remarkable DeMarcus Cousins stint. I mean Ty Lue pushing every button that uh that he could to make it work, but I I got to believe Chris Paul like just didn't want to hear the you know, going back home to Phoenix, three-one stories. So will Will Chris Paul blow it again? Will it be? Will this be a, a line in his resume? I mean, so I, I think that was that was part of the motivating uh, motivation for him in that one.
0: What was cool about it? This has been an issue in his career, right? Where it's like I'm giving you a 22 and 11 in every playoff game, basically. I'm the most yeah. consistent point guard who's ever lived. But if we really need me, or else we're going to lose. That then it gets a little dicier. Now, we saw it with like Spurs 2015, he made the game winning shot his playing on one legs. But for the most part, it seemed like he would wear down. It seemed like in the biggest stages, sometimes he just didn't come through. And just in general, it's the curse of the little guy, which we've only seen a couple people really overcome. Isaiah Thomas was able to do it. We've seen people do it for short, short stretches. Isaiah Thomas on the Celtics that one year. <laughs> um, but for the most part, I were and I did a book of basketball pod about him in December. And the premise was basically, can you call Chris Paul the point guard if he's never made the finals? Like, how do we reconcile this? Mm -hmm. The way he's flipped his legacy, even just making the finals was a legacy flipper. If he wins it, then it becomes a different conversation where it's like, you start talking about, was this the second best point guard of all time? Did he officially pass Isaiah? I feel like he has to. Does he move into like on my pyramid? Is he a top 20 guy? Things like that. I had him 40 before the season. I have him 30 now. I have him right on the cusp of level four, like right next to Stockton. Mm -hmm. But now we have this chance for this guy to rewrite it. It doesn't happen that often in basketball. I can't even remember the last time it happened, but had you given up on Chris Paul as as this possibility?
1: No, because I I feel like he reinvented himself last year. And and like, I thought, I thought last year you could make the case was like the finest year of his career before this season, because to go to Oklahoma city and not just embrace it, accept it and embrace it, but to elevate that team, which had no business as a six seed, like no business being a six seed in the playoffs to elevate that team the way he did. That showed me a a different side of Chris Paul, because up until that point, i kind of felt a similar way as you, like, is there an underachiever in him? Are we going to look back and say like, he should have done more with the Clippers teams, with the Rockets teams. Like it would always be like, maybe he wasn't on that level. Like, even though they got beaten the first round, like I, I thought that was like that seven game series with Houston was one of his finest playoff performances. Mm. that year in general was his finest year. And like, I, I'm among the people that believe Phoenix was on the upswing anyway. Um, You know, I I don't believe that the bubble games were an aberration. I thought that they caught something in there that was going to carry over no matter what. But the way he elevated DeAndre Ayton, the way he picked up some of these young guys like Mikael Bridges and made them better. I mean, he he's written an entire new chapter in his career. and, and, And that's not something you say about a lot of guys that. You know, some guys are able to kind of recapture old glory. Chris Paul never really had old glory. He like now is have finding new glory at 35, 36 years old. And and that's, yeah, you know, that's not something you see very often.
0: Yeah, it was interesting hearing him talk in the post game about, you know, and I had great years here and six years of the Clippers and I'm like this was the Amityville horror house for you. Like, it's like somebody going back to the haunted house, but I had some great years here, except, you know, that time the blood came out of the walls and (laughs) my daughter was levitating over her bed. Um, he had some, of some awful playoff losses. And I think the, you look back at the 14 and 15 teams and it's almost like a documentary. Um, and then it seemed like the ship had sailed. And I think this became, I did a podcast, I think it was beginning of April about like basically the case for the suns because i felt like they had a game in utah when they beat utah in overtime and it was the first time i was like wait a second this is a weird year it could be just one of those years where like toronto in 2019 where it's like wow that happened um this team is the first team that's built for him it wasn't intended to be built for him but when you look at like he's got the shooters he's got the second score he's got the big guy He's got the force of personality; they revere him, and it just seemed like, wow, could this happen? With that said, I still feel like the Lakers are better, and I still feel like Kawhi, if he's healthy, I think this Clippers team would have beaten the Suns.
1: You I think the they case, would so you can make the case stuff. for for Denver too. Like, does Denver yes. beat him with Jamal Murray? Like, I mean, look, it's not their fault. You play who's in front of you, but yes. You this know, is the old
0: Patriots argument, right? We're the Patriots. Yeah. Like, oh,
1: this. this. Like, hey, man. I don't know. Like, I don't know where you stand. Like, the asterisk thing is stupid to me. Like, you know, like I don't remember. Like, the Mavericks won the championship in 2011. I don't really remember off the top of my head who won in 2010. Like, it's just like you don't remember. Y- you're not going to look back and say, "Well, that's Suns team. If they won the finals, they had to beat a Kawhi-less Clippers team." Like, that doesn't really happen. Nobody actually thinks like that as as history begins to unfold. So, I, I yeah, you know, I, I, I'm I, I think this. This Suns team, you know, I, I, the, the impact of Chris Paul, you know, I, I look at the, the DeAndre Ayton stuff. That to me is the biggest part of all this. Like, yeah, it's Ayton like one and a half of, Chris Pauls. It is. And like, but Ayton, he always had this potential. And even in the, I didn't really love him in the bubble either. Like in the bubble, I'm looking at a guy like his hands aren't great. He kind of gets frustrated. He doesn't get post touches. Like the impact Chris Paul had on DeAndre Ayton this year, basically convincing him that it's okay to be a lob catcher. It's okay to be a defensive staple. It's okay to, you know, I'll get you to your double-doubles. I'll get you your, your touches so you get your points there. Like, I think Paul's impact on DeAndre Ayton's mindset, you know, was one of the biggest influencers of the success of this team. Booker was going to do Booker things. Like, yep. he was on his way up no matter what. But Ayton was the linchpin. That's a top-ten defense. And that's largely because of DeAndre Ayton. I don't think DeAndre Ayton plays the same this year if Ricky Rubio is there and not Chris Paul.
0: Did I had some Celtics pangs with this Chris Paul thing. There was a couple of different (laughs) times when it felt like they could have had him, right? The draft, they almost traded Pierce for him. There was Rondo. When were the Rondo-Chris Paul rumors? What was that, 2010 range?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Rondo Uh, found out. Rondo got pissed. Yeah, he got pissed. Yeah, there was a whole
0: feud with them. Um, I'm sure there were moments in 18 and 19. That's another hilarious thing with this Chris Paul piece where, He's the worst kind, con- one of the worst contracts in the league for two years. Yep. You have to give away draft picks with him to get rid of him when you're Houston, and now he's going to get a massive extension. And I'm sure, I'm sure the Knicks will be waiting just in case. But I, I would assume I don't. I doubt it
1: gets that far. I doubt it gets that far. I, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he, you know, everything I've heard, yeah. You you opt in, then you extend like two years on the back end of that deal. So you basically go, you finish your career with, and you can save the the sons a little bit of money on the final two years because you're collecting that 44 million on on this next year. So I I think he's retiring in Phoenix. It seems like it works there.
0: Are are you sure, Big Shot Bobby Sarver is not going to get a little? Uh, that
1: that worries me. That does worry little... me, Bob. Bob Sarver <laughs> worries me. That that's going to become an expensive roster in the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, because you got to give eight in a bag. They're yep. already talking about give eight in the bag. Booker's making max. And then Chris... Look, this this probably isn't time to talk about it as we're having this Chris <laughs> Paul celebration thing, but do you want to be pay, paying Chris Paul $40 billion like three years from now and he's going to
1: be 40? He's Wait, already... But, but the then stuff we have this he's doing now though- <laughs> has
0: never happened. Like, three years from now, he's going to be doing this?
1: Don't you think Chris's game's going to age really well, though? Like, he doesn't rely on athleticism at all. Like, his... Maybe. His entire game is, like, dribble across the lane and shoot a mid-range jump shot. He doesn't even defend at this... Like, his defense is, like, reaching in and kind of swatting balls away at this point. I think, like, the way he's playing now... And the fact, too, Bill, like, he like after that that season when he went down with that hamstring injury, he went the Brady route. Like he started to do that plyometric stuff and, and work on his flexibility. And it worked. Yeah. And it worked. Like he's, he played what, 70 plus games each of the last two years. So I think health-wise, he's figured some things out too. I wouldn't hesitate to give Chris Paul, you know, two more years on the back end and, and let him go till 40 uh, with this team. You, you kind of have to at this point.
0: Well, I wonder if it's going to end up being like football quarterbacks where we always... It seemed inconceivable yeah. that Brady was going to play into his 40s, even though he was telling us he was going to play into his 40s. And then he did. Now we have Rodgers. who's going to be 38. He wants to play another five, six years. And it's just where it's going. And it makes more sense now. We haven't seen this really happen with basketball in the same way, but it feels like it's about to like LeBron is at a minutes number that the history of the league says his career is going to end pretty soon. But. The, if you if you use the quarterback analogy, like maybe he can play 75,000 minutes. 60,000 has mm-hmm. been really the limit for everybody. Like that Kareem kind of set the standard, but maybe you go 75,000. So then when I think of Chris, like could he play 30 minutes a game, 70 games a year? So he's basically paying 2,000 regular season minutes and then another 800 in the playoffs. And you're just very careful. It's almost like having the fancy... Awesome car in your garage that you're not driving to California, but you'll take to, you know, the beach. And maybe, yeah, maybe you could get to 40. I just feel like with Sarver, that guy has had no history of ever spending. And they, and really, they should have won in the mid 2000s and didn't because he just wouldn't go over a certain number. So the thought of him having three max guys seems inconceivable to me.
1: Yeah, it would worry me. But what choice do you have? Like if you don't, Discuss those two extra years with Chris. He'll opt out, and he'll get a big offer from the Knicks. Like somebody's going to pay Chris will Paul, be the Chris Paul, big money this off. The Knicks are interesting. They might run at Mike Conley too. Like there's a lot of the Knicks are might be leverage for everybody at this point. The next uh, couple of months. So I, if you don't like, what are you telling your, your your fan? What are you telling your team? Like you're gonna replace Chris Paul with Cameron Payne? Like I love Cameron Payne, but I yeah. don't want to see Cameron Payne in a Chris Paul role for an entire season plus the playoffs, he found lightning in a bottle in this series deserves to get paid for it, but I don't want to see him, you know, replacing Chris Paul. Like you've, you've got it. You've got to do it. You have no choice or else you're going to wind up, you know, blowing an opportunity to create like this three year window to be a championship team. I, as, I agree with you. Sarver's crazy. Like he, he would worry me um, a little bit if I'm a Phoenix fan, but I'm not sure he's kind of boxed in here. I don't know. I don't know what else yeah. they do, but bring Chris Paul back.
0: And also if you bring him back, you, you, the three-year run thing is a great point because everything else is in place, right? You yeah. have the swing guys either on rookie contracts or in Crowder's case on a real contract. You have eight and you're going to pay. Booker's under contract. You get Chris. You get some veteran minimum dude to be like your eighth guy replacing Sarich and you're good to go for two more years. I think the West has a chance to be really great next year because you feel like the Lakers, LeBron we'll have this whole summer to really get in crazy shape. Same for Davis golden States up to shit. I don't know what, you know, I, I don't believe the Dame stuff. There's, there's some Dame rumors floating. I do not believe them. Uh, I did get excited when I heard the rumors are, was I started to do the thing like, all right, Wiseman Wiggins, seven, 14 and two more first. And they would just have Dame Curry, clay and Draymond. like, okay, that's something Dame comes back to the Bay, but um, I don't think that happens. But you know the Warriors are going to be better. Murray yep. comes back February, March range, hopefully. And they'll add one more piece. The Nuggets are there. They're for real. And then who are we leaving out? There's got to be one. There's one more.
1: Uh, Clippers. Clippers are right the back. Clipper, yeah, get, Clippers you know. back.
0: And then whatever happens Utah. with Utah.
1: U- Utah. Which Utah will be fine. Like I-, I think Mike Conley will will be back. That's another team that can't afford to lose who's Conley. I mean, what was it, 2017, when Hayward walked away, and they had to kind of rebuild from there. You let Conley walk away, and you're you're kind of in a similar position where you have no cap space and have to you know fi- you know replace him with like Jordan Clarkson as your your full time starter. You got to pay Mike Conley you know real money to come back on on a multi year deal. But if they do, like I was pretty disappointed in Utah this year, like to yeah. lose to the Clippers those last couple of games. But I still believe you know, that Donovan Mitchell can carry a team at that level. I still believe that Gobert, I mean, that was such a crappy matchup for Gobert against the Clippers. I still believe he can be like cha- like we say what Ayton's doing. I still believe uh, Gobert can be championship level uh, on that team. So I- I'm a big believer in the Jazz being right back where they were this year, uh, record-wise if they bring Conley back.
0: Would you feel good about giving Kawhi
1: $50 million a year? No. I'd be, I mean, again, but you have no choice. Like, these these free agents, like, They've got their teams over a barrel. Like, what do you do with yeah. the Clippers? Like, you gave up every asset you have to go and get him. So you're going you to let him walk to like Miami at the end of the season? Can't. Like that? You, you can't do it. So, yeah, I, I don't know. As we record this, I don't know the extent of the the Kawhi injury. If that's going to wind up being surgical or or whatever, but even if it is, like, you, you got to pay the guy and and deal with the consequences of maybe missing some of next year uh, because of it. There's there's no choice. There's no choice that they have.
0: We're taping this before the Milwaukee-Atlanta game. Yep. If for some reason Milwaukee doesn't make the finals, if that's how this plays out, but they're stuck with the team they have, basically, they don't really have a lot of moves. They just gave Holiday this giant extension, trade all these picks for him, and Giannis obviously isn't going anywhere. So then you'd kind of look at Middleton. I do feel like they'd run it back, but I still feel like maybe the coach change is where that would go if they lost this um i'm convinced rick carlisle was going there and that was why he left dallas when he did before that bucks net series ended and look i have no proof i'm not reporting this i'm just a tea leaves guy and i've talked to a couple different people and i'm just i'm convinced he was going there and then they won the series and Mm. now he's in indiana um I just feel like it's got to be finals or bust for Coach Bud. I don't care that he got by Brooklyn.
1: Well, does the Giannis injury, though, create an excuse to bring him back? I I agree with you. And, like, I had heard the same gossip. You know, Carlisle leaves. Here's a ready-made contender in Milwaukee. He would be one of their first choices to replace Budenholzer. But I I, I feel like Mike's winning that series and having Giannis go down, um, I feel like that's... Going to be enough to rationalize bringing him back. I don't know that that, hmm. I don't know if that's, I, I'm not sure that they, like they don't beat Brooklyn if Brooklyn's healthy. Like I think that's pretty clear uh, and probably don't next year uh, as well. But I don't, I, I look at the market like who do they replace him with at this point? Like do you call Terry Stotts to come in and coach like, you know, Steve Clifford? That's a good in? point. Like, they
0: might have, yeah, they might have missed their window. Yeah. To get like somebody. The window's
1: kind of like you want to elevate Darvin Ham. I mean, I, I don't know. Like but, there's, but, but then you end up in that like
0: mid 2010s OKC situation yep. where it was clear Scotty Brooks wasn't the right guy, but now, you, and now all of a sudden you've lost another year when you realize, or even like the Brett Brown thing. Not the I, I never
1: buy I never buy the Scott Brooks wasn't the right guy. Like Scott Brooks, like wow, a, a, Scott,
0: a zag with Scott
1: Brooks, I, a zag with Scott Brooks. I've always been a fan of, of Scott Brooks and like the same, like all those years that they didn't get back to the finals like th- there are reasons for it. Like Durant goes down. Westbrook goes down like that team. Yeah. That team stays fully healthy and they keep James Harden, of course, like they win a championship. They do. I-, I I can't fathom a scenario where they don't. And and that changed the perception all over again. Like, were they supposed to beat Miami in 2012? Like, no, like they were completely overmatched by Le- you know LeBron at his peak and having experienced the loss in the finals the year before. I, I think I I love Scott as a coach. And I think they would have, Wow, won. you love Scott. This is I love Scott amazing. I'm big, one of the
0: best zags on my podcast. I'm in a, a while. Big,
1: big Scott Brooks guy. Like he, I wish, like, I, mean, I wish
0: Joe house could come in right now to tell you about his wizard. Scott Brooks thoughts.
1: Oh, I mean, look, he, I don't think he's the greatest in game coach. I do think yeah. he's an excellent player development guy. Like, you know, all, like his his empowerment of Westbrook early was huge for his development. Like when everybody else yep. was saying Russell Westbrook's not a point guard, Scott comes in replacing PJ in one of the more disastrous coaching stints ever and oh, yeah. and you know empowers Russ and says you're the point guard of this team. And you know when like Magic Johnson's calling Russ like the worst point guard in the history of the Finals, like you know Scott never veered off that. And you can say like every coach, you know, would support their guy, but I think he was really influential in the development of Westbrook, which Westbrook who still backs him to the hilt right now would probably tell you. So I, I'm I, like, I don't think he's Phil Jackson out there, you know, coaching in game situations, but I, I think he can be a championship coach.
0: As, as we start thinking about past finals, what's the most shocking thing that you think could maybe happen Atlanta in the Wing? next three months? Uh, but not, in- I'm not even talking basketball. I'm talking after the finals. Oh. Um, the most shocking thing that is actually like, even if it's a remote possibility should at least be being discussed. Cause for me I, it's, are we sure Kyrie Irving's going to be in the nets next year? That would
1: be mine. I don't know, man. Like, I, <laughs> Oh, you like trading, that one. <laughs> I do like that one. Like, I mean, but even if Sean Marks wanted to do it, Well, first of all, the biggest problem with trading Kyrie is that no team in their right mind would take him on unless he's telling you he wants to be there. Because otherwise he will either sulk his way through the next two years or like retire and travel the world, uh, you know, go to Zambia or wherever and just kind of fall off the map like that's he's too hard to trade for that reason. Not because maybe you'd have to, you know, deal with the Durant fallout or, you know, potential locker room issues, but nobody's taking him on. Like what team would... What team would he want to go to? Like, you're not going to trade him like to New Orleans or I, I, this is no, there's no scenario I can see where Kyrie would be happy going to a place. So in that sense, I don't think it, it's possible.
0: So you don't think Kyrie for Ben Simmons, like some sort of as the framework or something is a possibility? I'm just yeah, completely making that up.
1: Don't you know that like, I mean, you, you covered Kyrie a lot. Like, you know, I mean, he, he has such a thing about control. Right, like that was his big thing leaving Boston. Like I want to control my destiny. He chose Brooklyn. He chose to play with Durant. Like if he gets yeah. dumped on Philadelphia, it could turn out to be a great situation. I actually like the idea of Kyrie and Embiid playing together. That's a pretty dynamic. That's a one-five pretty dynamic duo. But I just can't imagine him being happy if he's shipped off to another place that he doesn't want to go to. I I still look at the my off is just fixated on Lillard. Like what are these? Can these two guys have a meet? Two sides have a meeting of the mind and realize they both kind of want the same thing. Like, Dame is sending out all these signals, like these cryptic Instagram posts, the leaking stuff to, to Chris Haynes. Like, he he wants to go. He just doesn't want to look like the bad guy in, in saying he wants to go. Meanwhile, if you're Portland, if you're Neil O'Shea, you can't look at this team and say, like, we're a piece or two away from winning a championship. You're not, especially with the Western Conference loading up again for the next couple of years. Like, you, you can't do it. And you saw Dame this year, as dominant as he was, top five, top six type of player. He was banged up at different points during the season and he's like one like two month long injury away from being from his trade value going from like 100 percent to 75 so yeah. if you're looking to deal him now's the time like you can get back with the right team one of the great halls in trade history you can get if you want Ben Simmons uh, you can get
2: mm, I hate' I even
1: discuss I hate even discussing Boston as a possibility because this we always do this but you know Jalen Brown young players in every draft pick you've got That might get the uh, the job done, too. So you can get a a pretty big haul for Damian Lillard right now, and I'm not sure that's going to be the case a year from now. Paul George? But does that do anything for you? Like
0: That was theorized. Justin Barry brought that up on the Ringer NBA show last night, and I was like, oh.
1: You'd deal like CJ McCollum for Paul George and try to, you know, Keep it going, but if you deal for Paul George, aren't you just getting on the same hamster wheel where you're? Yeah, but yeah, Paul George is way live.
0: better than CJ McCollum, though.
1: No, I. Oh as, no, as if, like you, if you can guy. do that, if you can, I'm yeah, saying yeah. trading. I'm saying Dame. Like if you're talking trading, Dame. You don't feel for, like Paul George's trade. I feel like for me
0: in my in my mind and my trade value rankings, Paul George really won me over in these playoffs. I actually thought he did some stuff especially after Kawhi went out that I didn't think he was capable of. And he, I don't hold last night against him. I, I think to do that every other night where you basically have to be LeBron on the 2018 Cavs with this roster you have where um, everything's got to flow through you. And also he's got the defense. He's got to play 40 minutes a night. They are being really physical with him. They had multiple swings to just throw at him over and over again and ate in in the paint. I was really impressed. I thought that was the best I've seen him.
1: No, so, I, I was impressed too, but like, but what's the point if you're Portland? Like if you're gonna deal Damian Lillard, don't you wanna like kind of rebuild this thing? Like, I, I honestly think Portland should become Oklahoma City. Honestly, I think they should deal hmm. both those guys and try to get back blue chip under control players like Oklahoma City did with Shea Giltis Alexander and a million draft picks. That's why I look at Jalen Brown, who's got what, three years left on his deal. Ben Simmons signed through 2025. Like those are the type of guys who are both twenty four years old that you can start to rebuild this thing around. Paul George is what, like 31, something like that? Like, I, I don't know that that's, that that's going to point you in the direction you want to go.
0: Wiseman, Wiggins, seven fourteen and two more firsts from, I mean, we, from we 1,000 points we, to
1: late? I mean, Wiggins is like the contract, though, right? We're not looking at Wiggins as an asset, are we? Like, no, it's, it's a contract. Yeah, it's the con- um, I mean, wait. <laughs> we we
0: got to take a break, and then I want to talk uh, some Celtics stuff. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? This is something I've thought about a lot over the last 25 years. Sometimes little kids enter your life. Sometimes you're just searching for that extra hour. Sometimes it feels like all of a sudden it's three o'clock, four o'clock, and it's like, where'd the day go? I barely did anything. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority and therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Bill Simmons today to get 10% off your first month, 10%. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Bill Simmons. This episode is brought to you by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you've side hustled your way to playoff tickets, auctioned off those vintage jerseys or started a sports podcast of your own, hey, you're like me, Switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at turbotaxcom slash guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax live. So you mentioned Oklahoma City. This is something you mentioned to me that I don't know if you've discussed anywhere and I don't know if I've heard it anywhere, but you were surprised the Celtics didn't kick the tires on Sam Presti, who is from Massachusetts, who I think went to Emerson and who I think everybody has just penciled in to be in Oklahoma City for the next sixty years, but is somebody that has a unique understanding of the Celtics as a franchise, the history of the franchise, um, what they mean what that opportunity is, the legacy of Red Arback and people like that and you were uh, just do do your thing on Presty
1: well, I believe unequivocally that if the Celtics made an offer to Sam Presti, he would have taken it. I think that wow. the, Celt- I think the Celtics are Sam Presti's dream job. Like, as you said, grew up, conquered Massachusetts, played college basketball at Emerson. This is a guy that still, like, you know, brings his family back. to. I think his father so still lives in, in New England. Like, he still brings his family back in the summer, goes to Fenway Park. You know, like it, it, it's there's a connection between Boston and Sam Presti. And I think that if the Celtics had just had a little patience and kicked the tires on Sam Presti, they would have liked what they heard back. And for Presti, like there's no better time to leave Oklahoma City than right now. Like you've you took them almost to the mountaintop. You built a incredible small market success story. Yeah. And while they are down now, the cupboard's not bare. Like you've got a potential <laughs> cupboard's star not chain. bare.
0: It's, it's things are falling out I of know, the cupboard. Yeah.
1: yeah, It's it you're 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 overflowing with assets. Lou Dort, excellent player. All these draft picks uh, before Shay. before the lottery. Yeah, Shay, and before the lottery happened, like you had a chance of getting the number one pick in the draft. Now you've got uh, what is it? Top six pick. Um, and if you're Presty, you have like a succession plan in place. Like Rob Hennigan is being positioned as the heir to Sam Presti. Like he's one of only a couple of guys in the organization that have direct access to clay Bennett. Like he is being groomed for that spot. So, you know, if, if there was a time for Sam Presti to leave outside of winning a championship, this would be it. And I just, like, I if I have no problem with Brad Stevens, taking that job like i think brad's super smart and will find a way to be successful at that job my problem is if you have arguably the best general manager in basketball potentially available to you and you don't he's from here and he's from here and you don't even call like i don't know what we're doing i I don't know like could like then it opens up the can of worms of could brad have continued as head coach i mean that's you know, did Brad want to continue as head coach? I don't know the answer to that question. I asked him that. He said he would, but I've heard some, some different things. I think things. we,
0: I think we both know the actual answer to that question.
1: Yeah, I think he was a little burnt on. You know, I mean, like eight I years. I think he was burned time. out, and I think the, the it seemed
0: like the team was a little burned out on him too. The more we learned about stuff, probably.
1: I, I would be willing though to give him a, like, this is such a weird year with COVID and, like, quick turnaround, things like that. I mean, I would have, if if this had been a full season and they had played like this, I might be more willing to buy that. I, I would have brought him back for another year. But let me say this. Like, Sam Presti and Brad are, like, super close. Like, they, they yeah. talk all the time. Like, there was talk back in 2012 that, and to bring it back to Scott Brooks, like, that Presti wanted to hire uh, Brad Stevens af- wow. after thunder went to the finals. Like they got to the finals and Presti was interested in ba- Brad Stevens back then, but you can't fire your coach after getting to the finals. Of yeah. course, that's among the reasons uh, that didn't happen. So, I think if Sam takes that job, you know, Brad Stevens probably still there as the head coach. And then at that point if you're the Celtics, you are positioned with a guy who I think is still a top 10 coach in the NBA. I'm still a believer in Brad Stevens' coaching skills. Me too. And the best general manager in the NBA, you know, outside of Masai Ujiri or, or Pat Riley, like right in that that group to, to build this thing. I mean that, that infrastructure, not, not to have it or not to at least try to get it. That that to me was, was a little maddening to kind of watch unfold.
0: The cynical side of me wonders they gave Brad an extension a year ago. Yeah. We're coming. We have this three year run of, we have the Kyrie season, which was just unhappy. Then you have the pandemic season. Followed by the stoppage. Followed by we come back. They make this bubble run. Then this new season starts right away. Another unhappy season. You have all this basketball and this roller coaster rider drama and all this stuff packed into three years. He's got kids. I think he. I, I think he's a huge family guy. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he was that happy. I don't know if he felt like he was reaching the roster in the same way. Especially a couple of his stars. The chemistry was a little off. And at some point they're looking at it and they're like, We're, this guy has a huge contract. He's not going to walk away from it. They're not going to fire. And maybe they talked themselves into this front office thing. That would be my fear. The glass half full side of me thinks he wanted a break. He's an incredible basketball mind. And they became enchanted with the possibility of, yeah, this guy can rebuild our roster. He's our best option. And maybe it never occurred to them to to, to, I mean, that's, custody.
1: I mean, that's almost like, that's like malpractice if, that, if that's the case. Like, you've got to, if you're with Grossbeck, like, you, you've you got, you've got to have that awareness. Like, you've, you've got to, yeah. I mean, this is like, I think that Danny
0: thing was weird for them though, because Danny clearly was leaving. Yes. They, they, they had Zaren who's thought he might have a chance to get the GM job. So you're dealing with that too. You have Danny's son still there. Um, you also have a pretty white organization and they knew they had to address that. They knew that diversity had to be um, the number one thing they had to figure out just from a decision-making standpoint, from a forward-facing standpoint, all that stuff um, and how that related to how players felt about them, all those things. So I think the coach they hired by all accounts sounds great. That sounds like an awesome hire. And I like everything I've heard about the Brad front office thing, but I just wonder how we arrived there because I've heard this plan might've been in place even long. I don't think this came up. This happened in a week. No, no, no
1: months. Months. Yeah. Where they really
0: started talking about this.
1: You, you probably were hearing all the same things I was over the last few months that Danny was, was done. Like you, you kind of knew it. And I still think he winds up in some capacity in Utah. Um, as an advisor at this point, to <laughs> I would say uh, lock it down. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure that's uh that's gonna happen. And you knew like I it like the domino effect was this is people were talking all along. Like Danny leaves Boston, Dennis Lindsay leaves Utah. The third part of this was that people thought Dennis Lindsay was gonna wind up in Houston. I don't think that's gonna happen. At least not right away. But mm. I can see a year or so from now if if Tillman Fertitta wants to make a change at the top, Dennis Lindsay, who's only fifty two, could emerge as uh. As that guy. I just, you know, if this is such an impor- important decision. And if you have a crack at the best in the business, why not take a swing at it? I mean, you can back channel through anybody. You know yeah. what I mean, you can make a phone call, see if he's interested. And if he is, let it play out. Let him and Brad talk. I mean, the first deal Brad made, which I don't know was the I don't know if I do my first deal with Sam Presti, That's <laughs> that's just my opinion. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. Uh that that should be good. And by the way, that deal, that deal still feels you know, too knee jerk for me because now like Damian Lillard might be available. Don't you want that extra draft pick if Damian Lillard is potentially on the table? Like, do we really believe an Al Horford deal wasn't going to be there? Do you think that people were beating down the doors for Al Horford? I can assure you they were not. So yeah, that's that interesting. Little- I just, I assume
0: that they had one option to dump this Kemba contract. And if it wasn't going to be OKC, I don't think they thought there was a second team. Yeah, but, that, I, th- uh, they, but I, I think, think they, they were had to get rid into of that it. contract.
1: They were talked into it, though. I, th- I think Presti probably, and I'm just guessing at this, but probably was like, yeah, you know, maybe an Al Horford deal over here, over there. You better get this done, you know, right away. Uh, mm. And they jumped on it. Like, that's what a good GM would do in a situation like that. A he good experienced GM. So you think I mean, he look, took advantage of the Presti, new
0: guys? Like, "Ah, oh, you know, I, this is on the Presti, table for 24 hours. That's it. Sorry.
1: Presti is going to use that one roster slot. For crappy contracts he can keep flipping over and over again. Like, doesn't I it feel like it. next, doesn't it feel like next year Porzingis is gonna be a <laughs> like he'll be on the Thunder roster? Like Kemba, they'll find a way to get Kemba to play like 60-something games, and Dallas will turn around and go, you know, we need a point guard next to Luca. Like maybe that Kemba Walker guy who's only got one year left on his contract. You flip Porzingis for him and you throw a first-round pick into the mix, and this is like the never-ending story of Oklahoma City rebuilding guys. That, that, but the point is, like, I felt like that deal would have been there in August. Like, I don't think anyone was clamoring for Al Horford, and you could have made that deal after the combine to see if you kind of really liked anybody at the combine. Yeah. I mean, that would have been. Yeah, working. but on the and, other
0: hand, they they were interviewing lottery picks at the combine, which was also confusing.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I
0: don't know because because there's some. My my feeling is either Marcus gets extended or traded but it will happen the next six weeks and it'll be one or the other. And I would I would lean toward the extension, but I wouldn't be surprised if they traded him for, I don't know, the seventh pick with the Warriors. Um, if they were, the contract stuff would be tough, but um, actually, I think the contract stuff would be really tough. Not bad. like Sacramento or whatever. Like the 7-9 range is probably his value because I do think contending teams really value him because they've seen him in three conference finals teams, you know, they know he could be like the fourth or fifth guy in a really good team.
1: No, that's like if Portland keeps Lillard, like that's why like McCollum is intriguing for Boston because smart would probably complement Lillard differently at least than McCollum does. Like, you know, the biggest problem in Portland is that there's no defensive, there's no defensive backstop there. There's nobody that yeah. that can guard wings the way that smart can. So you put smart next to Lillard, you take a lot of pressure off him in that sense. So I, I think there's, there's a, there's a good market to, to your point. There's a really good market for Marcus Martin.
0: I'm going to whisper this. Cause I don't want the 29 other teams to hear this, but are we sure he's as good as he was three years ago? Cause I don't no. feel like he is. No, I feel like athletically, I think he's really slipped. I, I, I don't think he's the same defensively anymore.
1: Now maybe not. he had I,
0: an off year and maybe he, there'll be a new conditioning program and it'll be plant-based diet and he's back. But I just think guards were going by him left and right last season.
1: Yeah, I think the shine has come off him a little bit defensively. And you kind of saw that in the, the all defensive team stuff. And like when I when I vote for that stuff, I don't like I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I spend most of my time like texting assistant coaches, asking them who I should be voting for. And that's why I kept hearing Dylan Brooks over and over again. So yep. I put him on, on my ballot. Um, uh, not a lot of them told me smart, like not, you know, I wasn't hearing his name as often as I've heard it in years past, but it may have just been an off year. Again, these COVID, this COVID year was bizarre on so many levels. Um, and he's still young enough to, to bounce back. And I think he has still has something left athletically, but he definitely was not the same defensive player this year that he's been in previous years.
0: Do you think there's going to be a team this summer? The, uh, I don't give a fuck anymore. I just want to do something to make a splash team. Like, uh, almost like Chicago with that Vucevic deal where they're like, ah, fuck it. And they just (laughs) traded picks. And Wendell Carter for Vucevic. They were just like, screw it. Need to have something happen. Is there a team out there for you?
1: What a disaster that was, though, for Chicago. Like, (laughs) you make that deal and just go into the crapper. And now you give away uh, that lottery pick. I don't know. I'm trying to think of...
0: Like, is, is Minnesota a team to you that you could see getting frisky? Cause that seems like a Ben Simmons team. What do you, you deal Russell then? Or I mean, yeah, if it's like Russell and Beasley and um, maybe it's not I, enough. I, I gotta be honest. I, and I've talked about this before. I is in the first time I said it. I honestly have no idea what Ben Simmons value is. Somebody sent me a Sacramento B article today about, they wrote this whole piece about buddy healed Marvin Bagley and the number nine pick for Simmons. And my first reaction was, that seems like way too much. I don't know if I'd <laughs> want to give up Buddy Hale to number nine pick for a guy who basically had a psychological breakdown offensively in the in the playoffs. Like, I don't trust him. And then on the other hand, I'm like, eh, maybe that's not enough. I don't, they're not even getting like a guaranteed all-star back for somebody that we thought like could lead a franchise. So I don't know what his trade value is. What do you think it is?
1: I think it's, I, I, I hear from executives all the time that are loving this Ben Simmons trade value is cratered conversation because mm. they hope that Philadelphia believes that. I, I think his trade value is actually higher than than what's being publicly portrayed, but you're going to continue to hear a lot of the negativity around Ben Simmons. In other words, I, I I think people value him pretty high across the league because I do think there's a belief that, someone's going to figure the shooting thing out. Like someone's going to get to him and figure out a way not to make him a reliable three-point shooter, but at least a willing three-point shooter and adjust his shot with his uh, blessing to make him a reasonably reliable free throw shooter. I mean, that's all we're really talking about here. Like we're not talking about Ben becoming, you know, Chris Middleton. Like we're we're talking about him just being willing to be able to shoot like 30 something percent from three point range, low 30s from three points, shooting 70-something percent from the free throw. He does that, and all his other positives are just accentuated. Like, his ability to lock you down like four positions, the human fast break that he is, like, I, I I think there are teams, I'll put it this way, there are teams absolutely salivating at the chance to get a hold of Ben Simmons and try to fix the things that Philadelphia couldn't. Maybe it's impossible, but there are teams really chomping at the bit to do that.
0: How much do you, is... I know he's under contract for a while, but I wonder how much is his agent dictating where he goes and teams being afraid, like, if I trade for him and he's not unhappy and I'm giving up all this stuff, like, why would I do that?
1: Yeah, I, Cause I don't he, know. Because we
0: saw, we saw Clutch do that with Anthony Davis where they're like, he's going to the Lakers. Like, you can trade for him, but he's still going to go there in a year. And they just put this cloud over any possibility.
1: But there was leverage there, right? Like, Davis yes. could walk in a year. That's why, like... When the Boston stuff came up, like you can trade for him, but he's gonna hit for agency the following year. Ben Simmons can't walk till twenty twenty five so you've True. got you've got some some wiggle room there to to figure it out like they like they'll work with clutch like you work with any agent like that's that's certainly o k c could o
0: k c be a possibility but what do they they <sighs> What do they get like back Like six and line? a bunch of their other picks, and then Philly has like an arsenal of stuff to go after Lillard with? Well, they'd have to be really, the picks are going to be the like, be it, the, the move. That
1: would have to be a, another domino to fall, right? Like, you'd have to... You couldn't just deal Ben Simmons for a whole bunch of draft picks, which you could with Oklahoma. They just absorb the contract. But you couldn't... Um, you couldn't do it without having that second move of the table. Which you can't leave Embiid by himself with, you know, just Seth Curry and, you know... Well, Tobias I was thinking Harris. like...
0: Like basically a three-teamer where the picks go to Portland, Lillard goes to Philly, something like that. Yeah, yeah, I I, I got to be honest, though. I said this the other day. I don't, if I'm Lillard, I would be worried about going to Philly, having them gut their team to trade for me, and then basically my title chances are tied to Embiid, who gets hurt every year. That would make
1: me nervous. Yeah, but you got to think, like, Dame, just kind of looking around being like, man, we couldn't beat Denver this year. Like, Denver got smoked by Phoenix, and we couldn't beat them. Like, six games. I had 33 points and a half. We were down by 12 in that game. Like, he's got to be looking around at halftime. He's got to be looking around saying it's not happening in Portland. So, as big a you risk know as Embiid's injury is, Like I, I got to believe he'd embrace that rather than staying in the same situation he's in.
0: The most fun trade from a drama standpoint would be Lillard for Davis. And LeBron turning on Davis and just Such the a whole heel turn. It's not just a basketball trade. It's a wrestling heel moment. It's it's uh, Hulk Hogan hitting Macho Man over the head with a steel chair. That'd be great. I would. It probably that. makes him better. It probably
1: makes the Lakers it better. Does. Yeah, because
0: you know? they have they you know Kuzma grabs some of those minutes. All that stuff. Uh, give me two fights that I
1: need to see this summer. Oh, uh, the two easy ones: Fury, Wilder, three will be fun for however long it lasts. Um, it, it, uh, it's like Deontay Wilder's last stand. And legacy, a legacy fight for him. He gets knocked out by Tyson Fury again, and mm. he'll be like, you know, I don't know, like the Clubber Lang of, of boxing in the sense that like he was knocking out guys that weren't very good, and then he goes up against uh, a top guy and couldn't couldn't get it done. So huge legacy fight for, for Deontay. And then, you know, Pacquiao Spence, August 21st, like that... Like the fact that Manny Pacquiao at forty-two is not only coming back to fight, but fighting the top guy in the welterweight division, an absolute, you know, beast in the ring in Errol Spence. Like that's if Pacquiao wins that fight, like there'll be a lot of people that, even though he lost to Mayweather, will elevate him over Mayweather. Because hmm. he will have he will have at this stage of his career taken out the number one guy uh, at welterweight. I, I'm honestly shocked he's taken that fight. I really am. I thought he'd like You know, wait for and he did this for a little while, but I thought he'd wait for like the Middle East money to open up and fight like a Mikey Garcia or somebody like that and collect a relatively easy check. He might even lose the Garcia fight, but he won't get beat up. This is a fight that he could get beat up. Like he could wind up like he did against Juan Manuel Marquez, like face planted on the canvas. I'm I'm honestly shocked he's he's willing to do this at this point. But that those two are clear tentpole fights for the summer. I might go to
0: that one because. I'm sure you know this. That's the same night as SummerSlam. Yep. And they made SummerSlam a little early so they could give people time to go from SummerSlam
1: to the <laughs> Pacquiao fight. That sounds like an amazing night. I, well, it's I, also, I don't know how I can turn that down. It's also, if you stay, it's like the back end of Summer League. Like, I think Summer League ends on, like, Wednesday of that week or something wow. where they, they crown, like, the Darren Ehrman All-Stars, the, the championship team right. out there. And then and then you walk right into to Fight Week. That's a wild week out in Vegas.
0: That could be the Poku Coronation Week where his Welcome. Summer League MVP,
1: we talk about Poku 40 and 20 in the final game. I'm surprised Sam Preston didn't offer like Poku for Jalen Brown. I bet he did. I bet he did like make that <laughs> offer. This Poku did. guy. You saw him that last game of the season. He puts up numbers.
0: What's that? What's your podcast, by the way?
1: What's the name uh, of it? Crossover. Crossover NBA yeah. podcast. Yeah.
0: Oh, with our guy, Howard Beck. Howard Beck. Love that. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Uh, Say hi to him. Newest to Danax. Thanks for coming on. Anytime. All right. That's it for the podcast. Thanks to Curtis and Manix. Thanks to producer Kyle Creighton. We are not coming back on Sunday night. We might be back on Monday night if there is a game seven of Hawks-Bucks. If not, I will see you on Tuesday. Enjoy the weekend. Fourth of July weekend. Stay safe. Don't get too crazy.